Welcome to the Abundant Life Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Stephen Kiley. For more information about Abundant Life Church, please visit www.abundantlifechurch.org. He says, therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which is so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down on the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. And I'll finish with these last two verses. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son every son whom he receives. Lord, tonight I pray that you would bring these scriptures and these thoughts together and you would make a portrait or a picture of what you want us to see and want us to experience in our own lives. We give you the praise. We ask this in Jesus' name. You may be seated. I think every one of us has encountered some sort of tribulation or trial in our life that has sucked the spiritual air right from our our lungs. And um, we've oftentimes wondered whether the trial was brought on by our own foolishness, our own negligence, or was something that God has set before us to help us grow in faith. The 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews is the hall of faith. That's what we really call it. Because it's, a, it's a, not just a museum, it's a living testimony or memorial of people who endured hardships and sacrifices because they wished to achieve something they'd never even experienced. They were searching, the Bible says, for a city whose builder and maker was God, yet they never experienced any of those, those t- uh, glimpses of glory. Sometimes in our life, we need to leave the realm of the carnal, that human element that every one of us lives in, and we need to go into the dimension of the spirit. If we want to understand the spiritual warfare that we are engulfed in, we cannot try to examine it through human eyes, through human ears, or through human feelings. The weapons of our warfare are designed to fight things that are not able to be touched or seen. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty to the pulling down of those strongholds that stand before us. I think that God allows the trials of faith in our life to come, sometimes to help us chasten our bodies, chasten our walk with God. 
We fast because we want to bring our bodies into submission. Sometimes God sends a trial to bring our spirits under submission. I look at one of the greatest uh, conquests that Israel had to face after leaving the promise or leaving Egypt on their way to the promised land, to the land that God had given to them, had given to their forefather Abraham. And I look at the very first obstacle that stood up in their way. And it's mentioned here in Hebrews 11, that's where we started in verse 30, the walls of Jericho, that formidable city that stood on the very outskirts of promise. It was going to be a test of their faith. They had seen God do mighty things in Egypt. They'd watched as God had turned the Nile and the rivers to blood and and how he had brought those 10 plagues and saw his greatness and judgment upon Egypt. He, He saw, they saw how God could do the miraculous and support for his people. They also saw the Red Sea split, allow them to pass, and when the Egyptians entered in, come together and destroy them. They had those images in their mind. They knew that God was able, but now God was going to actively ask them to participate in a miracle. This miracle involved their obedience. This miracle involved their faith in following things they did not understand. I wish that a miracle was like baking a cake. One cup flour, two eggs, some vanilla, a half a stick of butter, mix, put into a pan, a grease pan, in the oven for an hour, take out. When the stick pin is just, or the toothpick sticks just real nice, bring it out and eat it warm. Well, that's what I would do. But our walk for God is not necessarily logical. There's no formula for success. We, we write books about it and God delivers us in a certain way, so we write a book about it and say, well, this is how God delivers because look what he did in my life. But then all of a sudden, that same recipe doesn't work in a different environment because God brings us all into certain arenas as individuals to fight our own giants. David fought Goliath. But Samuel didn't fight a Goliath. And some of those in here didn't fight Goliath. They fought prejudice and hatred and torture. Well, they came to that city of Jericho. And uh, I remember being at Jericho with my brother. He's probably, you've probably been there several times now. But when we were there, I, I was surprised at how small it was. It was not as large as I had pictured it, but we got to see the foundations, and it was a formidable place. With the weapons that they had back in the time of Joshua, it would have been difficult to have have broken through the walls. And God said, before you enter into promise, before I start to allow you to eat the fruits of the land that you did not plant, by the way, I want you to exercise your faith so that you can see that if you obey me in the things that I direct you to obey me in, 
that there will be results, even if you don't understand. It says in Joshua 6, 1, it says, Now Jericho was straightly shut up because of the children of Israel. None went out, none came in. And the Lord said unto Joshua, See, I'm actually in Joshua 6, 1 through 5. Unto Joshua, see, I have given into thine hand Jericho and the king thereof and the mighty men of valor. And I've, I've preached on this verse a number of times. And I would probably, if I was them, I'd say, it certainly doesn't look like you've given them to me. It doesn't look like I'm healed, Lord. Lord, it doesn't look like you're providing for my needs. All I see is deficiency. I see things that are the way as they were before. Nothing's changed. But God says, no, no, you don't understand. I'm teaching you to use eyes that you've never used before. I want you to put your physical eyes aside. And I want you to start using the eyes of faith because your carnal ability is useless in the dimension of the spirit. I want you to see the city through faith. And faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So faith is based on the promise or the word of God. Faith comes through the word. Not the imagination, it comes through the word. I want you to see the city walls falling as you obey my word. And so he gave them directions. And you will compass the city, every one of you, all you men of war, and go around the city once. Thus shalt thou do for six days. Well, that seems strange. What kind of a recipe is this? And seven priests shall bear before the ark seven trumps of ram's horns, and on the seventh day he shall compass the city seven times, and the priests shall blow with the trumpets. Well, if we're not going to blow the trumpets until the seventh day, why even bring them along? Why carry those instruments, those trumpets, along for six days if they're not going to be blown until the seventh day. Doesn't make sense. And it shall come to pass that when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city shall fall down flat, and the people shall ascend up every man straight before him. That would be like clapping for the Packers before they've touched, had a touchdown. That's, that'd be like rejoicing before performance. But God wants us to see that he sees the end from the beginning. And so in Joshua, the sixth chapter, verse 20, as we go down further, they obeyed. So the people shouted when the priest blew with the trumpets on the seventh time, it, it, that's where we are in the scripture. And it came to pass when the people heard the sound of the trumpet and the people shouted with a great shout. Notice that these things were happening before there was any shaking, before there was one rock out of place, after they did what God had told them to do, that the wall fell down flat. 
It didn't fall to the front. It didn't fall to the back. It wasn't battered down with, with, with tree uh, limbs or with, with rams. It fell from the top down. And so the people went into the city. And notice this. They've been circling for seven days. But now, on the seventh day, God makes the way straight. Every man went straight. No more circling. They went straight into the city. Have you ever felt like you're circling? Do you ever feel like you're trying to get to a place that you just can't reach? I remember a number of times I've flown into Mitchell Field in, in bad weather and the plane can't land because of one thing or another, so we circle General Mitchell Field and I keep saying, I can see the place. Why don't we just land? Why doesn't God just do what he said he can and wants to do? Why does he make me continue to waste my energy? Or is it wasted? Are my prayers wasted? Is a prayer a waste of time? Is there only one prayer that is effective? Is it the last prayer before the miracle happens that's the one that was effective? All the people that might have visited that person in the hospital and laid their hands on them, the ones that anointed a blanket and sent it to that person, and then somebody comes in after all these things and lays their hand on the individual and they're healed and they say, he has the gift of healing. No, he was the one on the seventh circle. He was the one that was there when God's will was accomplished. See, there are ways that seem right unto us. And we try so much because that's what we do best to try to figure out God with our human intellect. But all the intellect that you have is useless without the word and without faith. Matter of fact, the Bible tells us not to eat, even teach it to each other, the philosophies of men. Because a lot of the philosophies that we teach have no root in truth, but they have root in tradition. Sometimes I do more circling than I do walking straight. Matter of fact, I can guarantee you that I've did more circling than I have walking into the promise. I, I think all of us have an imagination of how we like to see God move in a particular situation. But sometimes God has to nudge us. And I don't like to show forth my weaknesses, but... I know that one of the things that I wrestled with so much was uh, retiring. It just seemed so difficult. I felt that the time was right and I felt inside that, that maybe I should do it. But this has been going on for seven or eight months at least, maybe longer than that. And I'd, I'd decide to do it and then I'd decide not to and I'd say, well, what about the money? 
I'd, st I'd get up at 2 o'clock in the morning and I'd try to go through all of my expenditures and see if there would be enough at the end of the month if I did this and try to reason it out. And what I was doing is I was looking at what I'd accomplished in my life as though it was by my own ability. That the things that I had achieved in my life had been brought about by my own work and effort. Not taking into consideration that every good and perfect gift was given to me from God in the first place. And so I was one of those hard-headed guys that I'd say, well, Lord, um, I want you to do it for me because I don't want to make a mistake. And I remember I was, I was going to re retire March 1st. That was a decision that I'd made. And it was getting closer and closer, and I needed to give my, my uh, resignation in. And I, I kept thinking, well, I don't know. What about the money? What about the money? And I know everybody's saying, that's Brother Steve. You know, he's got his first nickel. I hear all that stuff all the time. I was married to an English mother. My mother was an English person, and I think she taught me everything she knew. But there's nothing wrong with that. But I canceled it out. I said, no, I'm, I'm going to keep on working. And you wouldn't believe what began to happen. And it was like God was saying, I'm disappointed in you. So what I'm going to have to do is discomfort the comfortable. I'm going to have to make this job that you're involved in something that's not quite as comfortable for you. And I remember, um, I, have, I, had a, I had a perfect job. I still have it until I actually walk out for the last, last day. I love going to work. The people love me. I always, my evaluations were always almost 97 out of 100. Every one, people, I had respect and everything, and, and it was a good job. But after I decided not to do what I felt like God was telling me to do, everything started to go south. I remember uh, walking into an office and talking to a, a person that was in the department that I work in, and I don't know what happened to her, but she went ballistic on me. I'm pretty easygoing, and I just told her that uh, suggested something to her that she could do in her job that would benefit the residents. And she didn't like that. And she yelled at me, started crying, and I didn't know what was going on with her. It's like she's going to have a nervous breakdown. And I said, this isn't about you. That was the wrong thing to say. <laughs> wrong thing to say. So I had to leave and she got on the phone and she filed a complaint against me for being insensitive. And, and all of a sudden, things weren't quite as comfortable. And I could go on and show you example of, after example of out of the perfect utopia of positions started to turn around. And I, in, the, in the eight years that I was at Regency, I never had a complaint. I never had any problem. But now everything's going south for the winter. And I knew what was happening. I was saying, God, I know you're trying to make me uncomfortable 
because you're trying to guide me into what you want me to do. I don't want to make this about me, but what had happened some time ago, maybe five months ago, I had a dream. And in the dream, I felt like God talked to me, and he said, I'm offering you a position. Will you accept it? And in my dream, I had, it was, there was no job description. I don't even know what I was agreeing to. All I knew was that if God wanted me to have it, I wanted it, whatever it was. And I said, yes, Lord, I want, I accept that position, whatever it is. And I was all excited about it, not even knowing what it was. And all through this, now on Sunday, Brother Kylie got up here, and I resigned on Monday. Of course, that had a direct reflection on my decision too was he was talking about, he was calling people out. I'm calling you out. And God's saying to me, I'm calling you out. In your life, there are some things that are good for a season. But we want to make them eternal. We want to make the thing that we have into something that never goes away because we don't like change. Because change involves faith. And faith is based on things that you don't understand and see. And sometimes in faith, you lose control. And none of us likes to be out of control. But God says, if I want my church to go into Canaan, it can't keep living down at Sinai. That's why the Bible says that the Israelites continually move from place to place to place to place. And they'd say, well, why are we moving here? How many years did it take them to get from Egypt to the land of promise? Forty years. How long does it take to get there walking? A couple of weeks? It's not that far. Why 40 years? And they constantly moved. The tent, the tabernacle, wasn't solid. It had no foundation. It wasn't in the ground. They just picked it up and they moved it over here. And then they picked it up and they moved it over there. And people say, well, this doesn't make sense. Why are we moving in the opposite direction of where God wants us to be? God is saying, I am raising up a people and I want them to know that this is a fluid lifestyle. That being a Christian isn't something that's based in one spot. I move you from place to place and don't settle down and don't put roots down into the ground and don't build a solid foundation because I want you to be move, ready to move when I want you to move. And you aren't going to understand why I'm asking you to do the things that I'm asking you to do. Do you know that there was one person in Jericho that brought about the salvation of more than just herself, and she wasn't Hebrew. There was one lady there that becomes part of the bloodline of Christ. Who would have ever thought that someone would enter into the lineage of David who the Lord was going to build his throne upon living in a city that was meant to be destroyed. All they knew was that God wanted them to destroy the city. But God says, you don't understand. There's a lady in the city that I'm calling out. And she's going to be the great-grandmother to Jesse. 
See, we'd like to destroy the thing that's in front of us when God's saying, yes, we're going to tear it down, but I want to take the good out of it. There's something inside your trial, the trial that you don't understand, that God wants you to take out because it's going to affect future generations. So we walk by faith. And it's not logical. I look at uh, Naaman. And I had this discussion. I've had a lot of fun in the last week or last several days with my groups because I know my time is short and I'm really trying to be crystal clear with salvation. Even though I've taught it 500 times, now I'm trying to say, what does it say? What does it mean to you? Are you ready? Because sometimes you almost have to grab a person by their head, make them look at you and look in their eyes and say, do you see that my lips are moving and that there are words coming out? Are they connecting with your thought pattern? Are you ready? But in some cases, they're not. And there's not a thing that you can do to make them change except turn them over to Jesus. But Nehemiah, he had leprosy. That was like cancer. That was like stage four cancer. There's no hope for that, they'd say. And one of his servant's girls said, oh, I wish you, were, you could go see Elisha. He'd heal you. Well, that little servant girl didn't understand it very well either because it wasn't Elisha that was healing people. It was God, through Elisha's obedience, sending his spirit into those that needed to be healed. Well, I'll make a long story short. He had a lot of pride. And I realized that girl that got all upset with me and went ballistic, I'd understand why she went ballistic. She had an enormous amount of pride. And her pride was so great that anything that even was sharp, even reasonably sharp, would prick and hurt her. You know, people that are easily offended, I know I'm wandering off, but I'm wandering back too. People that are easily offended have way, 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 way too much pride. Because if they didn't have pride, the amount of pride that they say they don't have, they would never be offended. Now, we all, we all have, have it. Everybody wants to be accepted. But your pride inhibits what God's trying to do because it's too sensitive, because it's self-focused and not people-focused or God-focused. It always is focused on the person in the mirror. You know when you've got too much pride? When you carry a mirror in your person, every few minutes you check to make sure that you still look as good as you did when you got up in the morning. Oh, wow, you're good-looking. I have the opposite problem. I said, whatever happened to the thing that was in the mirror 20 years ago? But when you realize that you're human and you start to mature, your pride level starts to decline because the smarter you get, the more you realize that your achievements were not based solely on your ability, but on the ability of the others that helped support you in God. But Naaman, he was all upset. He said, I, he, matter of fact, the scripture says, I imagine that he would come out 
and he would speak to his God, and there would be great ceremony, and everyone would recognize the great captain of the Syrian host, and there would be prestige, and then I would be healed. And I would greet the crowds. And it would be all about me. It'd be all about my healing. We have to be careful when God does heal. Because some people say, well, God did this to me. And yes, he did. But make sure that you're not glorifying in yourself, but you're glorifying in God's ability and strength and his hand in your healing. But you know what Elisha wanted him to do? Go dunk yourself in the dirty Jordan River seven times and be on your way. Matter of fact, he didn't even come out and talk to him. How would you like it if you went to the doctor's office and you're, you're dying and the doctor doesn't even invite you in? He sends out his receptionist and tells you, oh, you big baby, go down to the drugstore and get a couple aspirin. Just go out and do this. First of all, it would be offense because you've traveled a long distance to see this doctor and he's not even coming out to address you personally or to even examine you. Why did God have Elisha do that with this man? Because he wanted this man to realize that he was not a great, as great a man as he thought he was. He wanted him to realize that if he allowed his pride to govern his life, that it wouldn't matter in a few years. He wouldn't even be around for people to remember or to adore. And after Elijah told him to go to the River Jordan and dip himself seven times, he decided, well, forget you. I'm out of here. I'm going to show you that I, I have authority and power. I don't have to listen to you. And people do that with God. God, if you don't do it my way, I'm out of here. And then some smart guy comes up to him and says, you know what? Ah, you may feel that you've got the upper hand, but you're going to be the one in the coffin. It's not going to be this Elisha. It's, it's you that is sacrificing something that's valuable to you. And he came to his senses it, that was the miracle, by the way. The miracle wasn't that his leprosy was killed or destroyed or cleansed. The, the miracle was that he humbled himself and gave himself over to the word of God. That was a miracle. And he went into the Jordan River and he, he dipped the first time and everybody was talking, but he wasn't even concentrating on them anymore. I used to think that he was, but I don't think he was. He saw himself as a, a dying man without any future, without any hope, without anyone that could deliver or help him outside of God. That's all he saw in the mirror. And he dipped again, and maybe he said, Lord, forgive my attitude. Lord, the third time, I'm indebted to you. The fourth time, I am so thankful that you're giving me this opportunity. And each time he dipped down, there was progression in his approach to God. Repentance is the progression towards God. Each step of repentance brings your carnal man 
down to earth so that it can be buried. You don't bury people that are alive. Repentance is the process of, of physical, that, that spiritual, carnal death inside of each and every one of us. When he came up the seventh time, I don't know what his face looked like, but I can imagine that it was full of peace and thankfulness and love, just like the face of someone that receives the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. That's the kind of face that I see in Elisha, not haughty like it was before, not full of pride and self-adoration, but a face that was humbled by its situation, the life situation that came in hope and faith to a God that could do something about his condition and it changed his whole persona. That was the miracle because he died anyways. Down the road, he maybe died of old age. We all will go the same way. So maybe the miracle that you're looking for isn't necessarily the healing that you're asking for. Maybe the greatest miracle in your trial isn't the answer or the deliverance from the miracle, but the process of change in you. Have you, and I, I'm going to close in just a minute, but I want to make this point. Have you ever watched someone that's going through a terrible situation and you've watched them change before your eyes. They entered into the situation clawing and, and yelling and crying and begging and angry, all the emotions flowing from them. And then as the, this trial goes on, you begin to see a change. They become accepting and trusting and they start to change like a, a caterpillar into a butterfly in that metamorphosis of spirituality to where they can praise, raise their hands and say, God, I trust you. Thy will be done. That's the miracle. That's the miracle. And I have watched my sister go through this ordeal that she's going through and I have watched her change. I hate to see the trial, but I love to see the change. Some people say, well, they never got their miracle. Really? How can you say that? Maybe they got their miracle. It's just not what you would ask for. I am excited for what God is doing in this church. And I am excited about what's going to happen in my life and in your life. But sometimes you have to jump into the water and stop trying to enter into it a toe at a time. You have to totally surrender yourself over into God's hands and say, like Esther, you know, God, if I perish, I perish, but I trust you, that's a miracle. That's a miracle. So let's stand together tonight.
What's your miracle? I used to think that my miracle was surviving the illnesses that I had. The things that changed me were the, the struggles. The things that changed my personality and my relationship with God were the very things that I wanted God to deliver me from. And so I, like so many other people, now say, God, I didn't like it. I didn't like going through it. And it was painful. But I would do it all over again to have what I've been, I have received through it. That's the miracle. And that's where God receives the glory. Look at Job. It was the same thing. It's the same thing. Job was faithful. And he said, once I shall speak and twice I shall say again. And after that, I'm going to be silent. And Job finally stopped complaining and arguing with God because he realized that God loved him and he was totally in God's hands and said, whatever God wants to do, I'm still going to serve him whether it's what I want or whether it's what I don't want. And God said to Satan, see that man? See his righteousness? Don't see his wealth. Don't see his, his, his uh, acclaim. But see his righteousness, how he trusts me and he lives for me with his whole house. That's what God receives glory from in your life. That's how you praise him. Lord, I, I feel that we have heard a word from heaven tonight. So I say, Lord, to you, thank you for all the things that you bring us. Thank you for listening to this Abundant Life Church podcast. We pray it has strengthened your relationship with God and will continue to be a light unto your pathway to heaven. If you have any questions or comments regarding this podcast, please telephone our ministerial team at 262-965-5177 or email us at info at abundantlifechurch.org. At